Well, good morning. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. Thank you for being here, Second Service. We are going to do Romans chapter 9 today. The title is The God Card. This chapter, try as uh, we might, cannot be divided into uh, multiple sermons. I tried to do it. I asked other pastors to do it. I looked at an older version of my sermon from nine years ago on this chapter, and then I still couldn't do it. And uh, so we're going to attempt to do the whole chapter today. Chapter 9 is a rather difficult chapter to preach in its entirety. So what I want to do today is to take out one main theme or idea, and we're going to really try to understand that idea. And what you're going to have to do is take that idea and uh, read the whole chapter again on your own. That's why I have it printed for you in your bulletins. Uh, But I promise uh, it will be helpful and uh, you're going to see the chapter in a way that maybe you haven't looked at before. We're going to be in Romans until the middle of July when we will actually finish uh, the book of Romans uh, with a couple of interruptions for Easter. The key idea, oh, by the way, before I get in, we had some technical difficulties in first service where the the, the wireless connection from my computer to this projector is called AirPlay, and it kept cutting out, and then I had to readjust it. It happened three times. If it happens, I won't make mention of it. I'll just reconnect and try to stay uninterrupted. Okay? All right. The key idea that we want to start with in this passage, for this passage, is called egocentrism. You can probably tell what that means by... That word ego, which means the self, and then centrism, meaning centered. And so there's a kind of self-centeredness that this passage is trying to fight. According to Nicholas Epley of University of Chicago, he's a professor of behavioral science, just recently published a book called MindWise. The whole book is about egocentrism, and so you'll have to read that if you want to follow up on that idea. But he basically says this in the book, that... Egocentrism is a form of social anxiety. Okay, so it's not a good thing, but it's just there. It exists, and it's a social anxiety that causes people to have a constant self-orientation. So you're perpetually geocentric, like you are the center of the universe around which Everything revolves. And this social anxiety, which a lot of us suffer with from time to time, leads to other fun little phrases like the spotlight effect. And you could probably guess what that means too. The spotlight effect is when you are overestimating the amount of attention that people have on you. People don't recognize that shirt you're wearing. They didn't know you just got a haircut and they don't like your shoes because they don't notice your shoes, okay? But most of us, if we have new shoes on or get a haircut or a new shirt, we feel the spotlight effect. We think people are more observant of us than they actually are. Another fun phrase that it leads to is called the bias of the blind spot. Bias blind spot. It's when we are blind to our own subjectivity 
we are all people. That is, we are all subjects. That means that we are not objective. We are subjective. We have opinions that are pretty personal and pertain to our unique personhood and phase in life and mood and uh, everything that makes up who we are. But when we are blind to that, when we begin to forget that other people are other people, then we have a bias blind spot. Another fun word, phrase that it leads to is called the hot hand fallacy. And the hot hand fallacy is a future confidence based falsely on past success. You have the hot hand. You got to keep playing. Keep rolling the die. No. Because just because you won or you made it in the past doesn't mean you're going to make it right now. But you are biased. You are blind to the fact that it happened in the past doesn't mean it's going to happen in the future. The hot hand fallacy, a false confidence on the future. And then finally, another fun term that I've mentioned here before called anchoring. And anchoring is when you become closed off to new information and you remain anchored to your previous story and so you got a stock tip and you bought a bunch of stocks and you refuse to sell no matter what the indicators are and you keep holding on falsely believing that your life isn't ruined because you are anchoring and so egocentrism sent Trism is a fun idea, and it just opens the door to lots of other fun ideas. And the passage today is God trying to say to us, listen, people, there's a kind of egocentrism that you are anchored in, and you're blind to it. And I need to be able to show you that I, as God, have a rather different perspective. And that's what we're going to explore today. Here's a couple of stories to help get us started. Um, as a dad of younger kids, I remember when my kids were really young and uh, learning for the first time in life about this idea called object permanence. Any of you uh, know what that is? I see some parents smiling there. Object per- permanence is when two to three-year-olds and four-year-olds uh, believe that something has disappeared because they don't see it anymore. And you see this in dogs as well, if you are a dog person. You put something behind your back, and then it's gone. Oh, what happened? Or you throw a blanket over it, and kids just... Or they close their eyes, and they think they've disappeared. Right? This this is all um, object permanence. In 2012, Cambridge University came out with further research that gave us further insight into object permanence. And here's what the main thing that they learned is. That kids believe, this is uh, ages three to four, that they are seen only when their eyes are meeting the eyes of the other person. And so there is a kind of invisibility cloak that they wear until eyes lock. And then all of a sudden they're visible. And, uh, and that was so fun to read this article because uh, I realized I remember my kids doing something they shouldn't be doing. And I'm standing right there. And then I asked them about it and they just bold-faced lie. And it's because they weren't watching me watching them. So they think I didn't see what they just did. As far as they're concerned, they were invisible. 
It is not too distant in the way that we live. We live very much with a kind of uh, uh, invisibility, a sense that if we don't see it, other people don't see it. And if we see it, everybody must be seeing it. We have a hard time understanding that our perspective is not everybody else's perspective. Our feelings, our thoughts. Why? How? Well, the main answer is because people are different. Everyone is not like me. Oh, how hard a lesson that is. Uh, For me, you guys are familiar with uh, the Susie stories that I tell. And this Susie story about a Susie story is a Susie story. Uh, I, I just don't understand for, I just didn't understand for six solid years how Susie could have possibly a different angle on Susie's stories. Like I would be working on a sermon and then I would need a story and I would, the first thing that would come to my mind is a Susie story and I would write it into my sermon and tell it just so and it worked perfect for the sermon, but there she is cringing. And then she'd be upset with me and she talked to me about it and I could not figure out for the life of me how possibly she could have a different thought than I did. And believe it or not, it took six, about six years for me to say, oh, you know what? Let me check on this with Susie first. (laughs) We don't learn as fast as we think we do. Most of my life consists, day-to-day life consists of being what's called a leader. You know, at home, I lead my very little kids. They look to me for very big things, and they look to me for very little things, like when they can have a piece of candy and if they might. And I come into work, and I lead the team of staff, and I'm part of the board, and, you know, we lead the church. We make decisions, and it's just dawning on me. This is my 18th year in ministry realizing that, you know, leaders sitting in this position with this kind of perspective and these responsibilities on my shoulders, leaders have a very different perspective than followers. I remember uh, when I was sitting in the pews for four years, when I was directing the church planning movement for the covenant, I just went to church on Sundays. I didn't lead a local church. Now, I remember all the thoughts I have about the pastor and their sermons and their decisions and just thinking, Why is he saying that? Why isn't he doing this? What's wrong with him? And what do I do with all these clearly brilliant thoughts? I had nowhere to go with them. As a parent, as a human being, as a child, in different stages of life, in different decades, a person with different privileges, different vulnerabilities, different ways that I'm visible, different ways that I feel invisible, In this room, if there are 200 of us, there are 200 different perspectives. And even the same person has a different take on things from evening to morning to the middle of the day. Depending on what you had for lunch or what kind of evening. Just we are constantly changing all the time. This thing called perspective is an ever-flowing river. It's not set in stone. And here God is in chapter 9 saying, I am God. I know everything. I made everything. And I love these people. 
I have done everything I can in being patient and loving and in the fullness of time to demonstrate my love. I gave my only son and I cleanse them of all of their sins. I give them the Holy Spirit so that they would have an internal counselor guiding them towards my love. How do I possibly begin to explain my perspective to these people? I learned yesterday, uh, again, a reminder that there are more stars in our known universe. Can you have to know that we only know 4% of the universe. 96% of the universe is what we call dark matter because it remains in the dark. Of the known universe, there are more stars than there are grains of sand on all the shores of all the beaches of the whole world. Just imagine taking one handful of sand and just letting it slowly go and just all the little particles. Can you count that? Is it possible? And yet there are more stars in the known universe. And yet, this is the new information that I learned yesterday, there are more atoms in one grain of sand than there are all the stars in the known universe. I don't even know what I just said. <laughs> My mind just went, eh! it, it just froze, reboot. And that's God. And the Bible says he flung the stars into place. What? How does that God communicate to me? What perspective does he have about me, about my life, about the world? You know, like, I was just re- I finished this book last week, and it talked about time as a physical thing, like time and space. Like, these are just, t- there's a, a place in space where time ceases. And I just read it once, and then I read it again, and then I read it again, and I just put it down. I can't understand this. And that's God. He says to you, time flows. To me, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. I step in, I step out, I'm in you, I'm over you, I'm under you. I can't begin to fathom his thoughts. And God, that God, trying to convey his perspective to me is chapter 9 of Romans. Okay? And the best way to get a handle on other people's perspectives, who are you? What's your day been like? What shoes are you wearing? What life have you lived? Begin to ask questions. And so that's what Paul does. He plays the mediator between God and man, and he lists out a bunch of questions. And he starts with verse 14. He asks the question, Is there no injustice with God? Verse 19, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Verse 20 and following, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have a right over the clay? What if God, although willing to demonstrate 
his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. So these are questions that we ask and God asks back to us as a way to help us understand God's perspective. And what I want to submit to you today is that he plays the God card. And really, the best thing we can do is also to play the God card. Three points. We'll go through them relatively quickly, quickly uh, reading through the text. The first is Israel, the deserving. The second is God, the merciful. And third, Jesus, the stumbling stone. Israel, the deserving, God, the merciful, and Jesus, the stumbling stone. First, Israel, the deserving. Verse 4, 5, and 19. Who are Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises? Who are the fathers? Whose are the fathers? And from whom is the Christ, the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. And then verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Here we have an example of Israel's egocentric perspective. You notice that they are very, very aware of their historic and cultural identity. And their history and their culture serves as a basis for their sense of deserving and entitlement and justification. Now, I don't want to pick on the Israelites because I very much relate to this way of thinking. So the question for you and I is this. Is it possible to have invested so much in such a way, a certain way of living and being and thinking and hoping and doing without it somehow getting in the way of a fresh new perspective? Notice this church is just 64 to 67 years old, depending on who you ask. And yet, we are so emotionally tied to our history. Now, think about the Israelites. Against adversaries, they have for hundreds of years maintained traditions. They have been God's unique chosen people. They have been given the revelation of God through the law. And they have been foretold that the Messiah the one that would save the whole world, would be birthed through them. He would emerge as one of them. They're God's special chosen people. Would you not find comfort in that? Would that not be part of your identity and sense of worth as a person and as a people? I really relate to this. You know, I've been fasting uh, for Lent. And uh, my problem with fasting is that it's supposed to create humility in me. It's supposed to be a check on my arrogance and uh, lofty self-thoughts, my egocentrism. But the thing that it does, though, initially, is it makes me more arrogant because I'm fasting. 
And I'm not sure everybody else is fasting as much or as intensely as I am. You know? And this past week, I fasted from driving. It was really annoying. I realized I'm a car guy. Prior to that, I was fasting from food. Like, I didn't eat anything. I just drank water. I didn't even drink juice. So I had that baggage going into this driving. And so this week, I broke. And uh, I didn't break in the most obvious way, but the kids were asking about fasting because I wasn't driving. I wasn't driving them to things and things. So they were aware of the fact that I was fasting. And my wife uh, was fasting from sugar. And so they were asking me about fasting, and I just kind of glanced at Susie, and then I looked at uh, one of my kids, the one that was asking me, and I said to her this. I said, you know what? Just make a list of all the things that you don't do or eat anyway, and just call that your fast. I was feeling pretty good about my fasting. I was actually feeling horrible about my fasting. I was annoyed and irritated. And the high price I felt I was paying. I felt superior. I was drawing a sense of worth and value from this thing, this self-imposed prison called fasting. That's how my human nature works. I worked for years in middle, all throughout middle school and high school at my family dry cleaning store. I uh, would wake up at 5.30 in the morning, go to the store uh, with my, my parents, and I would work there until 8, 8.30. And then after school, I would come right back so that I can help at the store. And then I would go home at 8.30 or 9 and then eat dinner and do my homework. And then I would get five hours of sleep and then wake up and do that again. I did that for years. Sleep deprivation and uh, having no social life was part of life for me. And now uh, I'm really thankful for that work ethic and the connection that I feel to my immigrant heritage and my, uh, my parents' love for me. I just, I love that. But the flip side is I judge people who've had normal childhoods. What do you mean you were like on a sports team? And you, you complain about studying? Like, what do you mean you didn't, you, didn't earn a, you, didn't, you didn't pay your own way through college? Like your parents pay for school? Like I just, it takes nothing for me to look down on people. My perspective on what a normal life is, is pretty skewed. Israel the deserving, Peter the deserving, doesn't take much. And then we have God's perspective. God the merciful. Verse 8. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise that are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son, not born naturally, Not as a result of works, but as a result of grace, supernaturally. And then if you will mark verse 10 to 18 and verse 20 to 26 off, these are more biblical examples of how God works by grace rather than works. And it's God saying to us, From the very beginning, my strategy and my plan 
was to exercise mercy rather than fairness. And as Jesus himself said, mercy triumphs over judgment. God is not interested in what we deserve or what we earn. He's not interested in counting our sins against us. He doesn't care at all what our record is. No matter what record we come to God with, God says to us, that's not the life I want you to live. I want you to live knowing that I love you, that I care about you, and I am for you. No matter what you have done, that doesn't affect my love for you. I know sometimes you feel you brought this on yourself. Sometimes maybe you are a victim. It doesn't matter. All of it is just sin. It's a broken world. I'm not interested in doing the math. You're not going to get what you deserve. Even if you think you've done a whole bunch of good things, it doesn't affect me. There's so much more to that than you are able to realize. Your assessment, the judgment you pass on yourself, that perspective is really partial and incomplete. And it's illegitimate. I have a different take on the whole thing. From the very beginning, my plan was to bless you, was to love you on you and to show you through your life through your broken life through this very messed up world that i am god and i'm not a god who's far off i'm a god who's here and i will send you my son he will die for the sins of the whole world not just for yours not just for his but for the the reality of sin will be wiped clean off the face of the earth And then I will put my Holy Spirit in you so that it's by that Spirit that you will be able to know me and call me Dad, Abba, Father. You'll come to know my love, not because you are a loving person, not because you are a good person, not because you're diligent or you come to church or you serve or you give. But by my grace, you will look back on your life and you will say, Oh my God. It was God all along. It was never me. I thought parts of it were me. I thought I would be giving credit to me for some of it. How can it have been none of it? Just where where am I in the equation? And God says, you are the one being saved. You're not doing the saving at all. That's a totally different perspective. And God says, the God card I play is one of mercy, is one of love. It's one of utter, sheer graciousness. If you have a problem with God, you have a problem with mercy. Which leads us to our third and final point, Jesus, the stumbling stone. Verse 30 and following says this. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. That is saying even those who claimed righteousness by the law didn't get to it anyways. 
Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This word stumbling stone, it's, it's one of the more beautiful words in Scripture because it's got this really nice double meaning. Uh, it's the actual Greek word is the word scandal. And it's where we get the word scandal. But it's not like talking about a moral scandal where it's troublesome to you. But it's, uh, it's literally describing it, uh, a, a stone that would be found on a street or a pathway. And if you were blind, you would trip over the stone because you, you didn't expect the stone to be there. But there it is. But if you were a seeing person, you would just step right over it. And what this passage is saying is that Jesus will be a stumbling stone to those who are blind to their own blindness. If you will acknowledge the fact that you don't see as well as you think you do, that your perspective is very egocentric, and it's anchored in the wrong stuff. That you, you are committing the hot hand fallacy and you think you're all that. And you don't recognize just how needy and how blind you actually are. Then you will not take Jesus by the hand. You will reject him. You will be a builder that rejects the stone. And if you reject Jesus, then walking this path, thinking, believing you see... When in fact you do not, you will stumble on Jesus, the cornerstone. But if you actually acknowledge, begin to be suspicious about your own sightedness, then and only then will you begin to start asking questions and saying, Wait, do I need God? Would it, does, does it have to be by grace and not by my works? My resume is insufficient for me to live my life here and now and beyond. Really? I'm beginning to doubt myself. I think I might need help. I think I actually don't see as clearly as I claim to. God, are you there? Do you care? If you are there, can you help me? I need your help. I need a helper in my life. I need a counselor. I need the presence of a community. I need power beyond myself. And if that's the case, then you're beginning to take him by the hand and he begins to lead you and you no longer stumble on the stumbling stone and the stone that you would have stumbled upon becomes the very capstone or cornerstone of your life. So let me ask you, do you see? Or are you blind to your blindness? Are you aware of the fallacies that you're committing? Are you aware of your own very limited uh, egocentric perspectives? Can you begin to imagine that the God of the universe might, just might, have a different take on things? Can you begin to imagine that the people around you with God's spirit in them might be speaking words of truth and life, even if it contradicts your perspective? 
I've been playing the Peter card my whole life. Just every time there's a thought, an argument, a decision, a moment in my life, boom, Peter card. And at some point, I began to get tired of the Peter card. Oh my gosh. And this is when Paul says, I don't care what you think. I don't care even what I think. I want to know what God thinks. And he begins to play the God card. And Peter begins to play the God card. And you begin to play the God card. And we have God playing the God card of mercy and grace. And you playing the God card of mercy and grace. And all of a sudden, you see. This is a scandal of the cross. This is the stumbling stone of the cross. That we are to repent, not just of our badness, but also of our goodness. Not just of our fears, but also of the things we are so dang confident about. We repent of our failures as well as our successes. We begin to repent of our ego, our self, and saying, I am insufficient. I am not a worthy leader to lead my own life. And in my hand that I've been given, the card that will trump other cards, the card worthy of playing is the God card. And we begin to move beyond egocentrism to humility about our own perspective. And instead of having answers, we start asking questions. We begin to experience in our own hearts an openness to things beyond. Now, The thing with Christianity is we have said, just trust God, just believe. No, it's never we take our brain out of the way. It's that we begin to use the brain to ask questions and not just to have answers. Let me close uh, with two application points and a question. The question is, how do you and I, how do we begin to move beyond our egocentrism? It's our natural, innate orientation. For me to be more aware of the little cut on my finger than somebody else who's lost a whole limb in another part of the world, that is egocentrism. And I want to submit to you today, according to chapter 9, which is filled with questions, the starting point to get beyond our own perspective, begin to get in touch with our own blindness, is to learn how to ask questions. And so this is my first, uh, there we go. Almost had it there. All right. It's to begin to ask questions. And so this is my first action item for us. Would you spend this week focused, intentional, aware of asking questions of people? Be a question asker this week. Ask lots and lots of exploratory questions of your friends, of your coworkers, of your family members, spouses, uh, parents to children. Just ask questions. Even if you have a job interview this week, ask a lot of questions. 
just assume they might add something. Imagine that. You don't know everything. And imagine a position of grace and mercy that people want to love you. This is a second action item. Uh, Give to you and serve you and answer your questions. And and I want to ask you to uh, be in giving and receiving mode this week. More than calculating and trying to live by works this week. Just be generous. Don't do the math so much. Instead of tipping 15 or 20%, try tipping 30, 40%. Imagine you go out to dinner with the Sung family with four kids. I always tip like 40% because I have kids. Imagine you're with my kids when you go out to eat and tip a lot. Or if you buy yourself something and somebody asks about it, don't feel like you have to explain it. Oh, no, I got it on sale and I had this coupon code and so it's okay. Or no, just, oh, yeah, I love it. It's great. And watch people's reaction like, oh, aren't you going to rationalize that for me? No. Even if I bought it at retail or on sale, it's still by God's grace. It doesn't matter. I enjoy it. I love it. God loves me. God loves you too. And if they like it, buy them one. There you go. The final word. The final word that God speaks over us is the word Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. And God says, I will not give you answers because answers themselves will not answer the questions of your heart. Instead of explaining life to you, I will give you my son and he will shed blood and he will die for you. So that at the most confusing times in your life, you can look up and say, my Savior loves me. He died to save me. He lives in glory. My Savior and King. And through his death, we will receive the gift, the presence of God himself in our hearts. Reminding us that we are children of God. That no matter how your life reads to you at this time, it's not an indictment against you. That his love is over you. And his love in the end will have final say. And you will be saved and rescued. God loves us. He is for us. What question do you have? Ask of him. Would you pray with me? God, we are thankful that the God card you play is not a tyrannical one. It's not one that delights in our suffering. It's not one that is indifferent and cold. But you love us and you are merciful and you are kind and you are patient and you are absorbent and forgiving. I pray for our church this week that we would experience your mercy this week. Lord, have mercy on us that we might come to know you as a God, not of judgment, but of mercy. For all judgment has been poured out on your son and he has paid the price that we can never pay. He has absorbed into himself the wrath which we deserve. 
And so, God, we ask you this week, not for what we deserve, but for your mercy. And I pray that we can bring that kind of humility to our interactions this week with all those in our lives. We can explore and ask questions and be a vessel of your love to them. And I pray we would receive love in return. May this week be a blessing to our lives. And may testimonies arise of your goodness and grace in our, in, in, in our life and in the world. We pray to you, we look to you in Jesus' name. Amen.